Today, we are joined together by the hosts of the Partial Historians podcast, Drs. Radford and Greenfield, and I'm Steve Guerra. And we're here to discuss the 1951 film Quo Vadis, starring Robert Taylor, Deborah Kerr, Peter Ustinov as Nero, and many others. This is an epic sword and sandal film that clocks in at nearly three hours in length. And we need some serious top-notch scholars to tackle this beast of a movie. So um, thank you so much for all of us collaborating together to talk about this great movie. So before we get started, why don't you introduce yourselves? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to jump in. I'll elbow Dr. G out of the way. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've, I became interested in looking at history on film. So that's why Quo Vadis piqued my attention because I tend to focus on the films of the, the 1950s and uh, early 1960s in particular. And I've always been also very interested in the Julia Claudian period. So this film ticks a lot of boxes for me. <laughs> Ah, hello. Um, I, I deserve to be trampled by Dr. Radness, um, <laughs> being the film expert that she is. Uh, I'm an ancient historian and I focus on things to do with the late Republic and the early imperial period. And this means that I've done lots of undergraduate coursework teaching on the Julio-Claudians and Nero is obviously a standout. So always trying to figure out what's going on with the source material and then you're just kind of waiting for the students to come at you being like, oh, I saw Nero in this film. And you're like, okay, time to deconstruct. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm Steve and I host a podcast called The History of the Papacy. I'm not a uh, scholar or expert. I'm just a very interested amateur in early uh, Christianity. Well, that movie definitely ticks your boxes in as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think this is going to have a lot of good things to say about Catholicism slash Protestantism, potentially. Why don't we start with the context of the movie? It was the early 1950s, and I read that this is one of the very the first big Hollywood sword and sandal epics post-World War II. What was kind of going on at that time? Oh, well, I mean, there's a lot that you can say about the background to this movie. Um, obviously, it's based on a novel from uh, which was written in the 1890s, and it was actually written in sort of a serialized form by a Polish author called Henry Sankiewicz. Um, and it's been adapted a number of times uh, to the screen as well as being um, turned into you know, stage plays and opera um, throughout its life. It's always been pretty popular. In fact, uh, the guy who wrote the novel actually won the Nobel Peace Prize for this novel. Um, but I think the, this particular version of the movie has a lot to say about the post-World War II American world and also the emerging Cold War. Um, I mean... There, I think there's a lot of key scenes, particularly involving Nero, which sort of tap into that. What did you think, uh, Dr. G? Oh, yeah. There's that amazing triumph scene for Marcus Vinicius. And, I mean, the thing that they've done with the crowd sequence is just on a massive scale anyway. They're going for that feeling of spectacle. But then you get the back shots of behind Nero, of him looking out over the crowd, and the Roman salute is a fascist salute. And there's no way that you're not supposed to make the connection to things like triumph of the will, for instance. So there's ways in which they're mirroring um, some really traumatic moments from recent history into the visualization of this film and things like that crowd scene and also the visual symbolism that you see around his throne. He's surrounded with the fasces and there's also the eagle. 
And you think, okay, they're drawing some very clear parallels to Mussolini's Italy as well in this moment. And so you've got Mussolini, you've got Nazi Germany, and then you've got Cold War. And you're like, this is all happening in like this really concise space and visual framework of this film. It's it's really quite incredible. Yeah, and Nero's, uh, the way that Nero speaks in this film, there are a couple of scenes that are obviously t- meant to tap into that sort of Nero as Mussolini, Nero as Hitler, Nero as Stalin parallel that the studio was very aware of um, and I think sort of cashed in on uh, to a certain extent. Um, so, for example, when Nero is explaining how he's, you know, planning to, I mean, sorry, spoilers, <laughs> that he's planning to destroy oh, no, Rome. Not even, he won't I know, spoilers. I know, I know, that he's planning to destroy Rome and how he's going to, you know, set fire to it. And he's talking about how Petronius won't like his methods. He talks about how he ends up talking about, you know, how as an artist um, he must somehow exceed the stature of man in both good and evil, which is obviously meant to be tapping into a little bit of Nietzsche and and which were in the popular imagination of the time would be very much associated with the Nazis. Um, the way that he talks about what he plans to do with the Christians, he talk he talks about them in terms of wiping them out. That once he's done with them, the world will not be sure that they even existed. That he's going to exterminate them. That sort of language is obviously meant to be tapping into the sort of what was just happened really with the Holocaust and all that and all that kind of stuff as well. So I think. I think that they're laying it on fairly thick <laughs> when they um, when they get to have a go at Nero. I don't think subtlety is the game of, name of the game. There was no subtlety. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I'll jump to you, Steve. No, what, what did you think, Steve? <laughs> there was not one drop of subtlety in that movie for, <laughs> for three hours. No, I, I mean, I, I love it. I love it because Peter Ustinov is so brilliant. <laughs> I thought it was interesting, though, that the movie, it mirrored in many ways, at least the the bare narrative that of the classic, uh, from the Christian perspective, that Nero burned Rome and blamed it on the Christians, and then Peter being in Rome and Paul in Rome, and then um, the uncanonical aspect from the Gospel of Peter, it really followed that closely. It didn't it didn't diverge at all from that narrative uh, at all. No, no. I mean, it, it is interesting because from the Roman source material, um, they make it fairly clear that I, I, that whilst there were rumors about Nero setting a light to the fire of 64, I mean, particularly Chasset, it seems to be fairly clear that Nero wasn't in the city and that he actually organized fairly relatively effectively, um, you know, relief for the people of Rome afterwards, you know, as, as much as you can for in a fire that was supposedly so extensive. But yeah, they, they really go in this one for Nero is responsible. <laughs> I like, I actually enjoy the way that they, they create this character arc for him because this is, it's going against a bit of the source material. Um, we know that Nero wasn't in the city, but we have that historical detail retained in the film, nevertheless, as part of the planning mechanism to bring his artistry to life and the the interweaving of some of the historical details that we can confirm in the material, plus what has become the really popular narrative elements and perhaps the novel itself is part of the establishment of these ideas as well, this idea of the fiddling while Rome burns. This is all coming together in almost uh, Ustinov's performance, I would say, because I think the script is not great, I would, I would argue. Um, <laughs> oh, look, I feel like, okay, so you've got 
you've got the whole sort of cavalcade of like studio actors who are performing <laughs> too tight. And then you've got Yusinov who's trying to build a character and he seems to be the only one who's really striving for that in a way that a modern audience would recognize. Um, so the, the style that he brings to the execution of that role actually makes the script hold up. Um, whereas I'm not sure that that's arguably not so true for some of the other characters. I think that's actually true of, I, I mean, having, having, Peter Ustinov was also in Spartacus, which I've looked at. So I've actually looked at his a lot of his movies. I think that that's just actually true of Peter Ustinov in this time. I think he was a much more uh, he he is a more naturalistic sort of modern style of actor, and he does often stand out in in these sorts of films as a result of that. For example, he was the only actor in, on Spartacus to win an Oscar for his role, and I think it's because again he brings that that ease to the role, whereas everyone else seems a little bit stiff to our sort of modern sensibilities. Um, but I think it's really interesting, and, and this sort of taps into what we were saying before as well, that Nero in this particular version, in, in, the, in the novel itself and in, in previous film versions, uh, Nero sets fire to Rome because he wants to, he wants to see a burning city and be inspired as an artist, you know, like, like with the burning of Troy. He needs, to, he needs to be able to see it to, to really feel it. But they also tap into this idea in the 1951 film that Nero wanted to burn Rome because he wanted to reconstruct the city. And you get to see that fantastic model, which is actually showing the Rome of, in the era of Constantine. But it, again, that, that's the reason why I think they did that again was to echo Mussolini. Yeah, is it? Yeah. I was reading somewhere that there's some debate about where that model came from because it doesn't appear to be the one that we do have in Rome today. It seems that maybe it was made as a prop. I'm wondering if if anybody knows any more details about this, I haven't been able to investigate that further. You know, from I, I can't remember exactly, but I feel like it is meant to be. It is meant to be like the Mussolini type of model, but I don't think I don't think it is the actual one. But I could be wrong about that. I can't honestly remember. And I believe the film was, or the movie was filmed in Cinema City, Cinecita, I think it's called, and uh, just outside of Rome, which most of the movie just looks like soundstage it was filmed at Chinechita, yeah oh yeah yeah a lot of it is, those exterior shots are all Rome um it's it's quite incredible um obviously they've used a lot of the set lots in order to construct the ancient version but when you see them um riding around along the Appian Way and things like that you've got all of the Mediterranean pines and that's all part of the broader landscape that Chino Chito was able to access at this time. The studio is just incredibly massive. Given all the Mussolini overtones, it's interesting to film it at Cinecita, which is obviously the studio that Mussolini helped to establish. <laughs> Maybe we could talk a little bit about Marcus Vinicius, who was played by Robert Taylor. He was very, especially in the early part of the movie, he was very interesting, especially in his relationship to um, Lygia, the um, his love interest. I found it very, looking at it from a 2019 frame of mind, very creepy. Would... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that had toxic masculinity written all over. Yeah, I think I think I say for all womankind. Good for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it. I'm glad it felt creepy. Yeah, yeah. This is like pickup artistry 101, yeah. where it's like, you know, maybe if I, 
you know, just keep pursuing, she'll eventually relent. And then it's like, then the turnaround moment where he's like, you know what? I never want to see you again. Yeah. He's like, marry me. <laughs> yeah, he is an interesting character. I mean, Bar- Marcus Vinicius and Lydia, they're obviously fictional characters um, that help to tie the sort of historical set pieces together um, and bring the Christian and Roman worlds together, which is, you know, classic um, novel, toga play, Roman versus Christian movie type of storyline. But yeah, he it, it is really I find this really interesting though because having Robert Taylor play this role, Robert Taylor was one of the uh, friendly witnesses to testify in front of the House American uh, sorry, the House Committee on American Activities, which had uh, just happened just before Covatus was actually made. So he was a real symbol, perhaps slightly unwillingly of the Hollywood right at this point in time. And he was a massive, massive star. So I found it very interesting that uh, that he was at the forefront of this movie, especially again being made by MGM when um, uh, L.B. Mayer had also been one of the friendly witnesses to testify in front of HUAC. So are you saying there's a conflict of interest here or like in what way is it is it sort of encouraging your thoughts around well, him as a character and actor? Well, I think that Coivartis, whilst there are a lot of tones about, you know, the fascists and, and they are picking up very much on the Mussolini-Hitler parallels, this is also a Cold War movie as a lot of these movies about the ancient world that are made in the 1950s are. And it is very much tapping into that freedom versus tyranny idea that President Truman had outlined in 1947. And so as is typical in these sorts of movies, I think that you, you, you are meant to have this sort of clash between, you know, the freedom and the, and the oppressors. And I find it very interesting that Robert Taylor is cast as the, as the Roman, but he's the Roman that's going to come over to the Christian side and stand up to Nero. So he is going to, in the end, you know, convert to the side that represents freedom. Oh, and surely an audience going into this film in 1951 is maybe waiting for that character arc to happen, sure. given that context. Yeah, well, I would say it's, it's a these sorts of movies are based on novels and then toga plays um, from you know the the, um, the 19th century, which have have a very tried and true formula, <laughs> and and oh, and usually at the center of that is this Christian Roman love story between you know a man and a woman. Um, you know, so it's 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 a it's a well a well-trodden path. <laughs> All right. Oh, maybe you can speak a little bit to this, Steve, because I'm, I'm interested in the way in which Lygia is the representative of the Christians. Are we often seeing in these kinds of stories um, a masculine figure turning from a sort of secular paganism to a Christian outlook? Is that I think something that, that was, you've noticed? I found that a bit odd. For one, at that most earliest point I don't know how many high-ranking Romans would have been swung to Christianity yet, especially since there really wasn't a Christianity as such, not the way they portrayed it, that I'm a Christian. In Rome at that time, a Christian and a Jew would have been almost indistinguishable, especially yes. to someone like Nero. I mean, even by the, um, the, the records of the day from Gospel of Peter's, I think they said there was maybe five Christian families who would have been essentially Second Temple Jews, and that would have been it. And there would have been a fairly significant population of Jews in Rome at that time. But for for anybody who was outside of the Jewish community, Jewish Christian community, they would have been completely indistinguishable. 
Yes, I, I think you're right about that in the sense that um, knowledge about what the difference is between a, a Jewish person and a Christian person in this time period is is probably loosely conceived at best if it's thought about at all. Um, we know that the Roman connection with Judea becomes fraught in the decade following Nero um, and there is conflict going on there already. But the the permeation of the thought, we really don't see that in our historical source material until we get into like the second and third century where you get a lot more of the sort of philosophical dialogues coming through with a really Christian bent and looking at positioning um, a transition to Christianity as a positive step forward. Um, but for the Roman on the street, I think it's very unlikely in the period of Nero that they would have necessarily had much of a sense of what's going on. And this means that potentially an emperor could dictate what an understanding might be um, if we want to go down that sort of darker path of like what is Nero's connection, if any, with the Christians. Well, I think this is where it's obviously very much based on a you know the original novel and, and the subsequent uh, renditions of it. I think the reason why they've chosen to do this is very much based in that reality, not the you know not the time of Nero in that sense, because um, Henry Sankowitz was a Polish author, and Lydia and Ursus, the sort of giant guy that protects her in all of the movie, they were meant to be sort of representative of the Polish people and the Catholic Church Church in Poland at the time, um, and their resistance to the people that were oppressing them, um, and obviously uh, at, at the time. Uh, people were obviously more likely to be Christian, particularly if you're talking about, you know, in Poland with the the importance of the Catholic Church in maintaining Polish culture during this awkward time. So I think that that's that's that characterization is speaking to Sienkiewicz's time, not necessarily Nero's time. But that's that's just my <laughs> interpretation of it. Did they ever in the movie specifically say that Lygia was from Poland or from somewhere in the yes. north? I don't. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. There is. Yeah, there is a connection there. So Lygia is called Lygia because she's from Lygia and she's a Lygian. And Lygia is a, a region that is connected relatively um, with modern Poland. The people that she's connected to in this film are a real tribe who are mentioned in, in ancient sources like Strabo and Tacitus. So he has rooted that in some sort of historical detail, even if Lydia herself is obviously incredibly fictional. <laughs> it might be a little early in the conversation to discuss this yet, but being that um, Quo Vadis was an early or one of the earliest of that of a genre of movies that would come out throughout the 50s, like Ben-Hur, Ten Commandments, mm. King of Kings. What influence, if any, did Quo Vadis have on these other movies that came out that were like a huge hit in the 50s? Oh, well, I mean, Quo Vadis was a, a huge hit. It was... Uh... It was actually slightly too early for the widescreen technology that would dominate um, a lot of the, you know, sort of sword and sandal or toga epics of this particular era because uh, it was actually 1953 that The Robe came out and that was the one that sort of debuted Cinemascope. So it was a bit too early for that, but it was still a really massive hit and it was heavily promoted by MGM. I mean, it's really interesting that the Romans often – on screen, particularly in films like Quo Vadis, are shown to be these really 
debauched, corrupted, sort of levitious, indulgent people. And yet in order to promote the movie, the studios go in for lots of tie-ins. Like you could buy Quo Vadis raincoats, sports shirts, wallpapers, tablecloths. And my favorite is Quo Vadis fire insurance. <laughs> um, and, you know, they even had like publicity shots of Peter Ustinoff selling houses um, uh, for Crest Manor and all sorts of things. So it's almost... In a way, you could almost see the Rome of these epics as being a metaphor for Hollywood itself. But I think Quo Vadis is also emblematic of the sort of um, tension in Hollywood at this time because in 1948, there had been a, a very a landmark legal case in which the it was basically like an anti-monopoly ruling. So the studios used to have this enormous amount of control over movie products from the, you know making them to distributing them, and they used to actually own the movie cinemas that they would screen their movies in. In 1948, it was ruled that that was illegal, and they had to get rid of their cinema chain, so they couldn't just pump their product into into their old sort of chains of distribution. So I think they were feeling a little bit nervous. Um, 1950s was also the the decade that TV came along in a big way. And started to sort of challenge the need to go to the movies for your entertainment. Um, and it was also, you know, in the post World War II decade, you had the growth of suburbia and the suburban lifestyle. And, you know, do you really want to go to the movie cinemas or you know, all that kind of stuff? There's a lot of things going on that's making the movie business itself nervous, not to mention the whole HUAC thing where you've got, you had movie stars being investigated for so called communist affiliations. So, I think they, they sort of saw the need to make these sorts of big epics with these very heavy, you know, meaty storylines that are going to attract people to the cinemas. Um, and it's also, I think, the very heavy sort of Christian storyline is tapping into the fact that this is really the time in sort of 1950 where going to church and being a Christian really becomes not just something personal but something you do as a patriotic American to show your allegiance to America and the freedom that America represents as opposed to the godless communists. I, I believe that MGM was actually heavily in debt when they came around to making this film and they had to put up a lot of money. Like the budget is huge. So it's kind of like they're also going for the high risk, potentially high reward model of how much can we put into a film in order to get people into the cinema. And this does seem to pay off. Yeah, which did pay off because it um, it did really well for them financially and received eight Oscar nominations. 1951 was also around the time right after World War II, the US had gone back into a a light depression, not quite back to the Great Depression, but it was right around the early 50s where things were starting to be on the uptick, where people would have a little extra money to go to the movies and, um, you know, spend money on that sort of thing. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to miss the great Christian epic of your time, <laughs> would you? I mean, it, it, I mean, this, this story does a really good balance between uh, a historical storyline and a very sort of clear Christian moral storyline and that they they converge greater in greater and greater ways towards the the climax um, with a, a maybe a rushed resolution of sorts but but one that leaves you with Marcus Vinicius and Lygia like in the spot where uh, Peter has seen uh, and had a moment and you're like oh okay this is tying it all together very nicely you can see how things are going to progress and that sort of uh, that moment towards the end where he's talking with his second, um, where they're talking about a more permanent faith um, for a more permanent world. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think they were also, um, I mean, you, you can't underestimate how much of a draw Robert Taylor was uh, at this point in time in terms of attracting the crowds, you know, needed to make this movie a big hit. But in their promotion of it, they were actually also emphasizing their generosity um, and the idea that they were sort of helping out with America's, you know, Marshall Plan to try and put Europe back on a, more, a firmer economic um, footing as well because they talked about in their campaign um, book for this movie how they donated um, a huge amount of the food for the feast scenes, like you know, at Nero's palace, there's that massive feast scene. They'd given the the food that was left over to relief agencies for Italian children um, who were in need after World War Two. Yeah, I think that he is Robert Taylor is one where I I can see like at that time he was huge. I think maybe part of the reason why Quo Vadis doesn't stick out like maybe the Ten Commandments does is because Robert Taylor died relatively young. And a lot of the movies he did afterwards aren't like the big movies that carried through to modern times, if you will, into the later times. Looking through his filmography, nothing um, stuck out as like a huge movie that um, and I'm you know, I enjoy to watch some of those movies, a a good Charlton Heston movie. And he made a lot more into much later time. Yeah, I think Robert Taylor, even at the time, even though he was a massive drawcard and women, you know, swooned at the sight of him, um, he ever even at the time, everyone was sort of aware that he wasn't the best actor. They, I mean, it, I kind of feel sorry for him because I think people were quite open with with the ha- with the fact that they thought he was hot but dumb. <laughs> so he was he was the pretty boy actor um, that would draw a lot of women in. But yeah, I don't think he he wasn't he certainly wasn't wasn't a Peter Ustinov and he wasn't a Charleston Heston and he wasn't a Clark Gable. Um, he doesn't have that kind of acting quality that necessarily draws you back, you know, 60 years later. Since we're talking about it, maybe we'll go through some of the actors. Uh, Deborah Kerr is another one who, um, looking at hers, none of her movies really stuck out either, except for maybe The King and I. What um, I was going to say, you can't forget The King and I. <laughs> but other than, other than that, a lot of those movies, well, From Here to Eternity, where did she stand at that time? You know, she's actually one person I didn't look into um, in as much detail at this time. I have a feeling she was still relative. I don't think she was at the peak of her career um, at this particular point in time. I think she was sort of heading into um, the sort of heyday because she she did make a lot of sort of classic films like, as you say, From Here to Eternity and also um, An Affair to Remember is obviously was obviously pretty big and it's become, it's had a good afterlife because of Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> So yeah, I think I think she was really she was really heading into it in sort of, in the sort of the mid nineteen fifties was when she I think I think hit her real peak. And then Leo Gen 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 or Jen? I'm not Gen. As, I'm actually not sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, He's somebody who I think I've seen him in tons of things, but I would have never been able to put my uh, put my mind to what his name is. But he did a really great job. He was great. I mean, I think one of the most interesting. Um, roles in whatever version of Quo Vadis you look at is the role of Petronius. <laughs> I think it's a real struggle um, for a historian uh, seeing Petronius get so much of the limelight uh, because you kind of want Seneca to get the limelight and he really doesn't because he's partly out of the scene by this stage. But also it seems like, particularly in this version, that a lot of the things that Seneca strived for have just been transferred to Petronius <laughs> as well. So you're like, wait a minute, 
uh, I recognize this guy, but what what's his name again? You say Petronius. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure I'm so comfortable with that. Um, and Petronius, I mean, loosely, this is the guy who composes the Satyricon. So, so, so you say, uh, Dr. G, so you say. <laughs> I can only speak to no, what no, I've no, read. No, I know. I know. He, probably, he probably did. He probably did. <laughs> probably, yeah. probably. Um, so, I mean, having a character that is very much about the satire, and I do love the beautiful interaction between these two characters um, and the actors, where it's kind of you get to watch Ustinov's Nero be persuaded routinely, it would seem even though he's being insulted at the same time and <laughs> and it's only right towards the end of that with the final letter where he he has the realization that actually this has all been a betrayal uh which i think was just a fantastic um sort of arc for that relationship to go through as well um but this does lead me to thinking about the sort of the the motif of assisted suicide um, that, that is also a key feature that seems to run through this film where Petronius and Eunice go through this, this process in protest um, and this eventually is then mirrored by Nero himself. Well, I suppose there is some some historical basis in that, in that Petronius, the historical Petronius, as far as we can tell from the limited amount we know about him, um, was essentially kind of forced into committing suicide and Nero did have to also commit suicide and apparently couldn't do it without some help. <laughs> Maybe we could talk a little bit about the relationship between Eunice and Petronius. That was another one that seemed, it was a very odd chemistry between the two of them. Bizarre. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is very much, again, it's very much based on the novel. I mean, even to the point where in the novel, Eunice does actually make out with a statue of Petronius while she's, you know, thinking <laughs> about her hidden love for her master. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but I mean, it's just sort of, I, I, I mean, the, the gender politics in this film definitely don't stand up to modern day scrutiny. Um, the, I think this is to give you a really viable candidate for contrast with Popeye. Yes, yeah. And, and, and both Lygia and Eunice are doing this in different ways. One is showing you how it could be done through a, a secular Roman vision. One is showing you how it could be done through a Christian and both stand as a sort of a, a light mirror to Popeye's darkness which and i love the way the actress who plays popeya portrays oh, her I know. as well i know so um, obvious. Just, just like so so precise the arching of the brow and and the smile drawing people closer and they're like ah oh, that's the kind of bad woman i want to be <laughs> yeah but i mean it's it's very much playing into this um i mean we, we always see this sort of idea that the good women are the women that stay out of politics you know, Popeye is the bad woman because she's involved with politics. Um, she's she's going for public power, not just you know a private role. And it's also it's also in a way um, these sorts of movies could also be speaking to the gender politics of America in the 1950s. In that you do have obviously all these you know all these men coming back from World War II and being this, in this sort of hyper militaristic, uh, hyper masculine culture. Um, and you you kind of see this process where. Robert Taylor, Marcus Vinicius, he starts out that way, but then gradually he's sort of domesticated by Ligio in going back to what could be seen to be sort of the, the, true, the true way of America, which is, you know, something that is rooted around the family unit and um, 
the domestic influence of the feminine characters and, and the religious beliefs, um, which is what we sort of see happen obviously by the end of this particular movie because the Romans always have the most screwed up personal lives in these movies. It's a sign of their decadence and corruption, whereas the Christians have the more traditional uh, family values. And you do certainly see a very clear um, sense in which uh, women are positioned solely in relation to their to their position in regards to men. Yes. So, and, and this is happening to all of them. And so... These vision of women as written by men, it's not at all clear to me that it that it feels um, like a story I can get into in that sense. It's like watching the progression of Ligia's character where you have to be told that she's always been looking at him in a certain way and you've never noticed that she cared. I was like, she's trying to get away from this guy. Uh, Marcus Vinicius keeps following her around in her own garden and she's sort of like I've I've got to keep lighting these fires and now I've got to go inside and then like 15 minutes later it's revealed that well you know she's always been looking at you and it's like what Uh, it's a metaphor she's lighting the flames you know yeah yeah and I was like I didn't notice that she was doing anything but just trying to put him off politely and also that she couldn't actually get away at the same time which is a real issue and and then to have some a, a character like Eunice, who is supposed to be uh, hailing from Hispania, is played by an Italian actress. So you've got a whole bunch of layers of like the exotic other, and it's also kind of like a favor because it's being filmed in Italy, and you've got that context playing in the back of your mind. And then she's just completely subservient, and you're like, okay, well, this is a complete metaphor for the way that china cheetah is being used by hollywood for its cheap labor yeah i think i think it's also in the movie um sorry in the novel that this is based on um the petronius character i think is is quite similar in many ways but you get to see um, obviously a little bit more detail a little bit more of his inner thoughts perhaps in the novel and um i believe in the novel he, he is portrayed as someone who's obviously a real ascete you know someone who's really into beauty in the world and he's he's not cruel but that's more because being cruel doesn't lead to you know things that are that are attractive and beautiful and when he's about to commit suicide in the novel he thinks sort of regretfully of a particular vase that he's very fond of and Eunice (laughs) (laughs) and so it's kind of buying into that whole Petronius characterization which yeah in the movie I think it seems like he really genuinely cares about her um, by the end at first, she is just an object, but by the end, he cares about her. Whereas I don't know that that's as clear in the novel. <laughs> I thought it was also interesting with uh, Robert Taylor as Marcus Vinicius. In the beginning of the film, he he's acting like a classic Roman soldier. What you know, he wants to take Lygia, and then when he becomes Christian, then he turns into basically like the archetypal GI Joe, yeah. who's always doing right. And when he fights through the suit to get the people out of the flame. And then basically everything else is like the perfect archetype of an American soldier, what they would want from one in World War II. Definitely. Yeah. And I I, I don't think that's an accident because he is going to be the person. The, the weird thing about the way that the Roman Christian dynamic plays out in all throughout, really, from the Victorian era into Hollywood um, in the 1950s is that for both America and Britain who see themselves as being, you know, connected to Rome and the heirs of a lot of the good aspects of Rome, you know, and obviously there's a lot of political 
connections and that sort of thing. At the same time, they they also want to, they also don't want to see themselves as, as Rome. Rome falls. Rome becomes corrupted. They want to see themselves as the Christians. So Rome is always something that is, as one of my favorite books says, it's both the other and something that they can identify with. It, it's painfully familiar. So I think it, it's kind of good to have these sorts of stories in in their minds because you do get to see someone from the Roman side who you can kind of identify with who also comes over to the Christian side so that you sort of get that nice blend where you can identify with both aspects and it makes it perhaps slightly less uncomfortable to know exactly who it is you're supposed to be identifying and seeing yourself in during the film. Then another thing that came to mind is oftentimes throughout the movie, they would show just the really crazy outlander stuff that Nero did. How much historical fact is there to what the real character of Nero is? Was Is there a more nuanced Nero? Oh, look, there. there's definitely <laughs> some elements of justification here. The artistic storyline and him seeing himself as an artist has probably been overblown a little bit, but he certainly did believe that he was talented and he did perform for the public from quite a young age. And this has become a feature of his legacy, um, perhaps more so than it needs to be. Nero is a more nuanced character in our source material than a film like this allows him to be. He has quite a varied career and it's a history marked with trauma as well. Um, He grows up in a really divided household. The rumours about him having to, or maybe not having to, but being implicated in the poisoning of his brother Britannicus who's another contender uh, to be emperor. The fact that the marriage with the first wife, Octavia, his stepsister, is also marred by personal trauma and drama and of her eventual execution. He did order that execution, though. I mean, he could have avoided that trauma if he really wanted to. <laughs> he could have. Yeah. He could have. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that the trauma is just something that happens to him. Yeah. And the situation with his mother and what we know about the, the sort of increasing tensions with his relationship with Agrippina um, as he gets older and whether there's something about his character that predisposes him to this or whether it's the the circumstances in which he's trying to really forge his own path because he does push away his early advisors and he's generally praised um, for his early reign. Um, things take a pretty severe turn after 64, but they're not great before then as well. Um, things are definitely happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a way, the movie's got like some of the detail right in terms of by the time this movie seems to be taking place, it was getting into the worst years of Nero's reign. He had put on a lot of weight. He had that weird chin beard that Pity Houston <laughs> was sporting. And, and he was definitely, you know, doing things that traditional Romans might not have approved of, such as, you know, performing. And, and, and I mean, I think in a way what the movie and, Pro, and, and Sienkiewicz himself was playing off was a lot of the more scandalous, um, exaggerated stories of Nero that we actually find in the ancient source material itself. I mean, because Nero ends up becoming a bit of a train crash of an emperor, um, it seems to that mostly the negative sort of stock character tyrant material has survived in our ancient source material. And so we have um, people like Suetonius telling us that when Nero was performing, no one was allowed to leave, even if it was really urgent. So you have this story about a woman even giving birth during one of his performances. 
because she wasn't allowed to leave. And 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 also they do play on certain details, like when we you know before we were talking about Nero looking at the new model of of what will be the new Rome and how he was going to call it Neuropolis. That's a detail that is pre- preserved in Suetonius as well. That's not just invented for the sake of the movie. Whether the whether Suetonius was exaggerating Nero's um, character is, I suppose, the thing that we we try to figure out. But it's it's probably a little hard um, to figure out without enough. I mean, certainly the the thing that's interesting about Nero is that even though we do have these sorts of very negative stories about him coming through in Tacitus and Suetonius after his suicide, there are stories of false Neros popping up um, and being greeted. Uh, being welcomed in by some segments of the population, mostly you know the the people of um of the of the empire um the people of Rome, um so it seems that Nero probably was just really unpopular with the elite in particular, which you can understand because something there does seem to be yeah a very sort of popular feeling for Nero even with things like the fire they particularly get behind Octavia his first wife they don't want her to be exiled and they certainly don't want her to be executed. Um, so that gets them offside, but he does win them back in various ways. And his relief offered in the wake of the fire um, to the people of the city seems to be a huge um, positive gesture for getting the people back on side. Um, and all of that is really glossed over as not part of Nero's story in this film. And obviously there's very... Uh, good strategic and narrative reasons for why you wouldn't want to do that. It obviously creates a far more complex picture of Nero than perhaps is ideal for where this storyline is going. He is not solely terrible, although he obviously does terrible things. Um, But certainly the critique that's coming from the elite can't be discounted. There's a lot of negative tradition that is connected with Nero and our writing is coming from people who are senatorial members and they're coming from people who are also trying to offer warnings to their current emperors who they also despise. So there's a, there's a whole tension there about who's telling what kind of information to whom and for what purpose. And somewhere in there, the real Nero is mixed up as a, as a grab bag of horrible things. His relationship with Pompeia is, is not great either, and she also gets a terrible rap in Tacitus precisely because she's the kind of person who seems to be actively involved in politics when, as Dr. Arad was saying, women are not expected to be public and political in this kind of way. So there's there's a real complexity to the material here. Yeah, and also I think the fact that in Quivatus, they obviously really compress the timeline. So all of this stuff is sort of heaped on top of each other. So you've got, we see Nero planning the fire, we see him executing the fire, and then we see um, the backlash of that, you know, from from the people and also from his fellow elites. And then we see him punishing the Christians. And as a result of this, we end up seeing the conspiracy to overthrow him coming about as a result of these actions. Whereas obviously in reality, it was a lot more spaced out and it wasn't because of the fire or, you know, because of his persecution of the Christians that Nero was overthrown at all. Whilst Tacitus does remark that people felt sorry for the Christians because they were being made a scapegoat and Nero, you know, punished them incredibly cruelly um, for supposedly setting this um, this fire in 64, there was obviously a conspiracy, a, a fairly serious widespread conspiracy, which is what Petronius um, historically was caught up in in 65 and which had an impact in 66 and 67 as well in terms of, you know, Nero's reign was really never the same after that. And Nero himself, this is where he really let himself down. 
you know, in the aftermath of this rather serious conspiracy amongst um, the senatorial class, Nero takes himself off to Greece and participates in the Olympic Games and that sort of thing, rather than you know staying put and actually dealing with the issue. And it's it's only you know a couple of years later in 68 that you actually get Galba getting involved. It's, it's not as, it's, they, they obviously want to have a particular kind of cause and effect in this movie, which is not accurate. Um, and I guess, Steve, as someone who, you know, has studied more the Christian side of things, you probably would have noticed yeah. that as well. Yeah, that all seemed, especially when it got towards the ending, it really went quickly. It was it was almost jarring at the end, like they always went, we're at three hours, we better get to the end quick. <laughs> hurry, hurry, somebody's seen Galba. <laughs> yeah, and they obviously wanted to put in, you know, the um, the death of of Peter, um, and and work that in as well, which is not a hundred percent certain, as far as I'm aware. But you, again, Steve, you'd probably know more about that. It, I think it's a a bit of a. It's not clear exactly for sure how Peter died. Yeah, that, but there is a belief. Yeah, that him seeing the vision of Jesus outside of Rome and asking, "Lord, where are you going?" Quo vadis. That's all from that. Uh, Acts of Peter, which is apocryphal. It's not accepted as in the Bible of any Christian group, but it's a nice story. And there's a lot mm. of stories that come out from that time of where Peter and Paul are, are, are at Rome. The other one is the, um, the pseudo-Clementine novels. And that's another, um, I think that one is as long as two gospels, maybe even three. And it's just chocked full of great stories of Peter and Paul um, fighting with the Magi, having like a a religion battle, a prayer battle against each other. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) In the forum and just all sorts of great things like that. But they're all, um, all apocryphal. What do you think is the potential motivation for using these apocryphal stories as as the basis for transmitting uh, ideas about Christianity more broadly? I heard an interesting from a scholar, a biblical scholar. He said that, and it's sort of a new way of thinking it, that all of these apocryphal accounts, there's a really popular one, the infancy gospel of James. They're... Um, sort of a early Christian fan fiction the people wanted more. In the canonical gospels, you don't get a great story of Jesus's early life. I mean, everything starts in his 33rd uh, year. He's in his mid-30s, you know, mid-career. And people wanted to know the after story as well. And they don't, like in the book of Acts and in Paul's writings, you don't get a great a great uh, storyline. You're not getting a narrative of what happened afterwards. So these were ways for people to continue the story and en- enjoy the story more. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I think, as I say, I think in this particular version, it has a lot to do, as I said before, with, um, you know, what was happening for Seinkowitz in his particular context and with the church in particular. And it's really interesting, actually, that they chose to make um, Lidia's adoptive father, um, the general, they chose to make him Christian along with 
Lydia and his wife in this particular version, but that's not always the case. Um, in I think in the novel, it's actually just the his wife that's a Christian, and she doesn't even dare to raise their. They actually have a, another, another child. She doesn't dare to raise their child as a Christian because her husband isn't Christian. Whereas in this particular movie, they make him not only Christian, but they also make him the one to denounce Nero from his cross and you know call him out and uh, and tell the mob you know what's really going on in that you know the Christians weren't responsible for lighting the fire that Nero is playing them and. Um, you know, and, and all that kind of thing. And that's really the standard story, but fast forwarded about 300 years in the Constantinian time and a little bit before it was really amongst the aristocratic families. It was usually the wife who was more apt to become Christian and the, the Potter Familius was the one who had to be dragged along. This makes sense, I think, from a, a contextual perspective, because the paterfamilias and men in the family in general are going to be already engaged in the public political sphere. It's a lot more risky, I would think, um, up until a certain point for them to be openly professing an attachment to Christianity. And so while they may be talking about it at home, they're potentially talking about it in public just for reasons of safety up until there's a threshold point for that. But yeah, I can see how the political scape might be a preventative factor for open engagement. I always thought it was interesting, though, that in a lot of other cultural contexts, it was oftentimes the women of the family who were the ones who would be more conservative in the way of like culture and religion. And the men would oftentimes be the early adopters of a new culture. But then again, that's usually when the men are going to another place and being exposed, like say in um, Anglo-Saxon Britain, when the, they would go by themselves and not bring their families. It's a, it's kind of an interesting dynamic when something new, like a religion bubbles up through a culture, how, how it transmits. Yeah, I mean, I could be wrong about this because this isn't my area of expertise. I'm just sort of remembering my uh, <laughs> my undergraduate days. Wasn't wasn't there some sort of um, line of thought that maybe with Christianity, one of the reasons why women seem to be so involved, at least at these sorts of early stages, is because a lot of the meetings had to take place within the home, you know, rather than in a public space, um, because it was something that was obviously still in its very nascent stages, and it's and it was obviously something. Um, that the Romans viewed with suspicion at various times. And so they tended to have meetings, you know, in people's houses, whereas normally, I suppose, if you're looking at the kind of religion that predominates in this world, it's all about being in the public. Uh, it's mostly about being in the public space or or being quite open about, um, you know, your religious beliefs and practices. I think this is definitely part of it. And I think the other factor to keep in mind is that there is – in this period of history, the inequality between genders is quite substantial and Christianity is actually offering an updated and more equal perspective on the relationship that uh, men and women would engage in with each other. So this sense in which they're all part of this broader thinking and submission to one is also submission to the other. Uh, And although those texts may have been interpreted differently over time, there is a sense that women might have a, a, a greater position of respect in, in a particular way um, in, in a Christian perspective early on, which we might not see a flow-on effect necessarily historically all the time. 
But um, in those early stages, yeah. So I did I did love the fact that Lydia was dressed in um, a blue mantle <laughs> and a white dress in the very last scene. Very merry. <laughs> in the early times, women too, they would have had full membership. Maybe they wouldn't become elders, but most other people didn't become elders as well. But in any other in any other way, they were full members of the of the organization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's something I think you can definitely, that's something I feel like the film has kind of got right in the sense that Lydia and her mother, you know, are, are quite involved in, in the conversations and the sort of congregation scene. <laughs> if you, I don't know what else to call it. <laughs> One other thing that, um, th- that I'd love to hear what an expert has to say is in the scenes where they're finally, uh, the, they're setting the animals off against the, against the Christians in the arena. <laughs> Is there historical records of that's what the animals would actually do? Like, would a lion actually just run out and go crazy attacking? No, <laughs> that doesn't no, seem like no, something they do. No, no. <laughs> it makes me it makes me sad to think about this. I mean, obviously, we've got the anachron- anachronistic use of what seems to be the Colosseum. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the true. first issue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whilst the Romans did like to use exotic animals in the arena uh, and they did like to stage, you know, interesting spectacles and interesting ways of executing people, from what we can see in written sources, it seems like animals like lions don't really respond very well to massive amounts of cheering crowds. It tends to spook them. <laughs> well, yeah, and it also seems to be it's it's partly more of a popular cultural association that they're using animals against Christians as well. So. And we know that if you want an animal to perform in this way, you have to treat it pretty badly and not feed it. And even the animals that are used in this film were difficult to train because they didn't want to run at people. Um, they were they were circus animals um, that were on loan from various um, circuses throughout Europe. And they were difficult to train. And also they were filming those scenes in a very hot summer and those animals didn't want to be out in the sun either, uh, understandably. You're a big cat. It's daytime. It's time for sleeping. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even just thinking about the treatment of the animals in this film, it's very yeah. it, 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 makes me, it makes me sad. Uh, but also I think about like, well, how does that knowledge translate to an understanding of the ancient world? And I can't imagine it would be any easier um, to attempt to get an animal to perform in that kind of way for a spectacle it's much more likely that you'll just have gladiators going in and, and doing the work. They know they get paid. They understand the social conditions. Yeah. There is there is now, um, or at least the last time I was there, Dr. G, you were there more recently, so you can perhaps uh, update me on this. I believe there is a cross in the Colosseum. Is, there, is that still there? Um, yeah, there is. Yeah. Yeah, which is still a bit of debate about because – Whilst it probably happened that at some point a Christian ended up in the Colosseum, not in the reign of Nero, obviously, because the Colosseum didn't exist. It was built over one of Nero's um, architectural innovations for his brand new golden house after the fire of Rome. Um, I don't believe we've got any firm evidence that, uh, that Christians were in fact killed in the Colosseum. We don't. We don't. And we have a really long history of of Catholicism in Rome as well, which starts to double over uh, with the ancient buildings that are left behind. Um, I know this is going to get way off topic, but there was a proposal by a pope at some point to repurpose the Colosseum as a church um, and to take that central area and turn it into 
um, an interior for uh, for worship, um, which to my mind is just a, a fascinating trajectory from the way in which uh, Christianity is navigated in that very early period of Roman history and Christianity to where it is in these films and then where it is throughout the Renaissance, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I mean, uh, in terms of what is actually happening to the Christians in this film, though, there is some basis for that in terms of yeah, what's actually going on in the in the arena. Um, if I'm going to I'm going to just quote this directly from Tacitus because he sums it up pretty well. He says that what Nero does to them to um, to punish them um, so for supposedly setting the fire and everyone's willing to go along with it because of their hatred of the human race, and I'm quoting Tacitus there, they were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses and when daylight failed were burned to serve as lamps by night. So that's and that, that's a pretty typical Roman punishment. They kind of like the eye for an eye kind of way of thinking, and so to burn someone who's accused of setting a fire seems like poetic justice <laughs> in the Roman mind. Is there anything else you want to touch on going to drag the Vestal Virgins uh, into this. Ah, yes, the Vestal Virgins. Such a minor role, but such, such a, a major one for you. <laughs> so important. Well, first of all, there appears to be seven, so I'm a little bit concerned. So yeah. it, it seems that the Vestal Virgins have been upgraded slightly from being priestesses that worship Vesta. Um, Vesta is the goddess that looks after the communal hearth, which represents the fire of the city itself and is thought to represent the safety of the city. Um, they're very much connected with the emperor in this imperial period. Yet what we see in this film is Vestal Virgins basically acting as announcers at events. <laughs> yeah. They sort the of, MCs. Yeah, I bring out my MC, the one woman who's allowed to talk in public besides the empress. I, I give you the chief Vestal. Um, so yeah. she... She makes announcements at the Triumph. Um, she also makes announcements uh, at the arena, um, assuming that we don't really know what this arena is or which one it might be. Um, but uh, this is a very weird role for them to play, to be honest. Um, we know that they're one of the privileged groups for seating um, at games. Um, so they have a special spot where they can watch, um, which is cornered off from the rest of the population. Um, but there is no evidence anywhere that I have come across that would suggest that they act as announcers um, at these kinds of events um, in any capacity. So to me, this is a fascinating moment of uh, reception to have this transformation of a public priesthood into um, the the MC announcer, if you like. Now the MCs are the double Vs. <laughs> so overall, how would you rank this movie with some of the other uh, great movies of that time period? Look, I think personally, because of Peter Ustinov, I find this a really enjoyable movie. I mean, my favorite scene, definitely, and one I always show to my classes whenever we're doing the Julia Claudians, is when Nero receives... Uh, news of Petronius's death, and he says, "Digitalitas, quick, the weeping vase." <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> and captures, I ca captures one one tear for him and one tear for me. Now seal it and hold it for posterity about how Nero wept for the death of his friend. <laughs> I'm actually really fascinated by this. I did make a note about this one. I was like, "Is there any historical evidence for something like this?" It's gloriously over the top. But is it there... reminds me of Harry Potter now, but that's obviously not what it was at the time. 
<laughs> no, I just, I just love, I love Peter Ustinov's interpretation of Nero, even though it is buying into the the worst stereotypes of Nero as a tyrant, of Nero as you know every enemy of America at the time. Um, I think he does a fantastic job, and and I think that that as as you said earlier, Doctor G, I think that he does breathe life into the script. Um, in a way that I think the other actors are more typically of their of their time and, and of this particular epic medium, and they seem a little bit stiffer. Um, so I think Nero and Papaya and Papaya, to be fair, the, that couple, I think they're fantastic in their roles. They what have, did you think, Steve? Yeah. I thought that's what it, at first when Peter Ustinov, when you first see him, it's like, oh, man, he's really this is really over the top. But then once it gets rolling, like you just you believe it. And it's he is definitely the the shining star of the movie. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, <laughs> I feel like if you had anybody else in that role, this film would not be one that we would want to talk about, um, because if this role is played in a in a wooden way or in that sort of stiffness that that we see coming through some of the other actors, it just wouldn't hold up. I mean, you wouldn't be able to believe in Nero. And I think in order for you to get into a lot of the stuff that's happening in this film, it really does generate your sympathy uh, for the Christian parallel story that's running through this. Be like, okay, well, you're clearly being targeted in this moment by somebody who is insane <laughs> but is able to rationalise their insanity. Um, yeah, and uh, it is interesting because Nero actually was, he only became sort of the, a more major focus in the from the 1925 version of this of this movie which was made under Mussolini actually um before that Petronius really was the the you know the the focal character um but Nero Nero becomes more major yeah yeah Petronius has a lot to offer I think and yes and I think the actor has done a serviceable job with Petronius that's true yeah um, that's true but he's not he's not stealing any scenes either really um, I think he's he's meant to be kind of subtle and, and like some of the stuff that he says it's really subtle like when he's um when Nero first floats the plan of you know maybe I have to set a real city alight to be able to appreciate what it would have been like to see Troy burn and he has Petronius has that line where he says oh that would be taking art for art's sake too far which is a really interesting nod to MGM's Latin motto uh, about <laughs> art for art's sake so I, there's a lot of subtlety, I think, in Petronius. You're right that you don't um, that sometimes gets overshadowed by Eustonoff, but really serves the movie well. I think that actually leads into what might be my final question about this film, which is the special effects relating to fire. Um, how much did they actually yeah. burn, and how dangerous was it? And were they doing overlaid scenes? Like, how was that executed? Um, I'm really curious about the technical aspects of that because a lot of that fire looks real to me not uh and how that is done is I'm really quite curious about well it's really interesting because being that the fire is obviously often a big set piece you know no what no matter what version you're looking at it's kind of part of the appeal of Quo Vadis, I think is the fact that it's quite easily adapted and it's got these big set pieces like the fire and the and the um you know the crucifixion of um St. Peter and, and the treatment of the Christians and all that kind of stuff. But there's rarely any focus on the aftermath of the fire. Like it just sort of happens and then you go straight to dealing with the Christians. Even in the novel, they, I don't think they really dwelt very much on the, the destruction that's caused. And the historical fire was incredibly damaging as far as we can tell. Burnt down a huge amount of the city. 
Yeah, those. It certainly did. Those Sorry, scenes where the <laughs> where they're. Uh, where Marcus Vinicius goes to try and get Lygia, those are just amazing with the burning buildings falling into the street. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, but yet afterwards you just sort of go back to the Christian storyline and there's just like nothing said <laughs> really about, you know, the damage the damage to the fire. And, and none of the major, like no major character dies during the fire which is interesting. <laughs> well, they're all in Antium, aren't they? I mean, they've gone south. <laughs> true, true, true. But like, even like, even with you know, with uh, Lydia and her family, they all come through okay. Yeah, they're they're in the city, but they're fine. <laughs> well, I mean, they, but they have to survive for the storyline, yeah. don't they? I mean, because yeah, they have to yeah. they have to go through that whole execution process. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the thing about Quivadas is um, it took what was a very like highly popular novel. Um, which had been adopted, you know, a number of times with with mixed success, and then it sort of kicks off the 1950s with a very a very successful Roman versus Christians toga epic, um, and. Hollywood is generally fairly conservative in the way that it likes to make films in the sense that they're like, oh, wow, that formula worked. Let's do it again, but just tweak it slightly so that we can continue to cash in on what, what it was that worked for that film. So I think Quovadis definitely um, contributes to the numerous films we get that have a, you know, a similar sort of focus throughout this, this decade. Well, I definitely, I had a great time with this. I think there's probably a lot more we could get into, but I think that we really covered the the gist of this movie very well. For a three-hour movie. In about an hour. <laughs> I think we did pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think at the end of the day, I think you can't really appreciate the complexity of this film, even though it seems like a very straightforward toga epic. You have to look at the backstory of not just the historical sources that it's based on, but you have to look at the novel, you have to look at toga plays. If you want to, there's a lot of interesting stuff about the previous films, um, like the you know the 1913 and the 1925 versions, and then recently in 2001 they just made a Polish version of this film. You know, to really appreciate it, you have to uh, look at it in all the context, and then you have to look at the impact of World War II, what were the movie businesses going through, the Cold War, the the HUAC hearings, and the investigations into communism in Hollywood. There's just so much that goes into this film that could come across, I think, as a very superficial movie if you just if you just watch the movie itself. Um, but it's actually, I think, a bit of a a catch-all for a lot of things that were going on at the time. Yeah, I think that it. it- it did well, even if you compare it to some of the modern movies that have you, the sword and sandals uh, epics of the 2000s, like Noah with Russell Crowe. It all got so yeah. muddled with the narrative, like they tried too hard, where I think this they did a very concise story that took three hours, but it was very concise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. They, by compressing by compressing the story, it might have changed the, the the focus a little bit, but it still is something that an audience can very easily yeah. understand. Dr. G, your final thoughts? <laughs> so I haven't spent much time with this film. I've seen it once. And my lingering impression is the sense in which uh, Rome is is clearly being positioned as as something terrible in almost every respect. Um, there is a real backlash against militarization, which is mm. completely understandable, um, given that this is just post World War II. Um, there's a complete rejection of fascism through the symbols that are connected 
um, with the Roman imperial system and that we see that flow on through to Mussolini. There is a rejection of Nazism um, through those triumphal scenes where you see the recollections to previous films and the clear signalling of Nazi Germany through hand gesture. And you can see the way in which the building narrative of the Christian outlook, which already underpins the American psyche, is being reinforced as the way forward to rebuild uh, what people understand to be a broken world in this moment. And I think this is something that is it's going to be... I'm trying to get into the mindset of the audience who would have gone and seen this in that moment and the sense of comfort that you would take away from that, that Mm. this is about building a world which is based on forgiveness and love and not violence and and being hugely reassured about that at leaving the cinema and being like, yes, that is the world that we fought for, but also it's the world that we now have to try and bring to life. Yeah, and I think that that's, I mean, in a sense, what this movie is all about is actually captured very much in the little voiceover at the very beginning, which uh, I'm going to quote if that's okay, where they say, Imperial Rome is the center of the empire, undisputed master of the world, but with this power inevitably comes corruption. No man is sure of his life. The individual is at the mercy of the state. Murder replaces justice. Rulers of conquered nations surrender their helpless subjects to bondage. High and low alike become Roman slaves and Roman hostages. There is no escape from the whip and the sword. And then comes in the but... Only Christianity has the power to challenge this. They would spread their gospel of love and redemption. And soon, which is kind of weird given that we're talking about 64 AD at this point in time, soon apparently Christianity is going to topple the Roman eagle, which of course is not remotely true. <laughs> and I think but, this, but, yeah, you know, yeah. I for think- America of the 1950s, <laughs> this is the Cold War rhetoric, you know. And I love that moment where this leads me to this point where Marcus Vinicius has his moment where he's like, he says to Lygia, will you give me the greatest triumph a man could ever have? Will you be my wife? <laughs> <laughs> that also speaks to the time, that that time period, that early, late, really late 40s when they're filming and very early 50s where the United States doesn't really know where it stands and you you a lot of like the rah-rah militarism that kicks in later especially with films with um John Wayne films just it's not in the the American psyche and you have Americans um it's probably a similar in other countries too where soldiers who fought in World War II are starting to get called back up again to fight in the Korean War and they're not particularly happy about that. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's in 1947 that President Truman sets up that dichotomy, you know, freedom versus tyranny in the world. And and then it's not long after that that obviously you see, you know, China falling to communism, the Korean War starts. So whilst I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek in terms of the rhetoric used about Rome, I, I do understand that people would have felt potentially a real a real threat from communism at that point in time, particularly given the, you know, the government propaganda surrounding communism and given that they've just seen, you know, the 1947 um, was when they started the investigations into Hollywood itself in terms of communist propaganda. And, you know, as I said, Robert Taylor was part of that. They would have seen these people held up and, and, and as secret, you know, 
secret communist agents trying to sneak communist propaganda into movies. You know, the the hysteria that was being drummed up at this time, I think for a lot of people would have meant that you you did feel a need for the comfort that your values and your way of life is what's going to prevail. It also makes you think about that 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 initial quote that Christianity obviously around the time of Constantine has to square the circle so to speak that it's becoming the the state religion of Rome not officially at that point a little bit later but it has to embed itself into what Rome is so it goes all that time of fighting against Rome and then it becomes Rome yeah and i think i think that Covatus will be an and will actually continue to be an endly populous um popular story to adapt because Nero and the Rome of this story so easily slot into representing whoever is oppressing someone at that point in time. So it's it's readily adaptable. And I think that's because, if you, again, if you go back to the novel, that's essentially what Seinkiewicz was, was writing about. Um, and so that therefore this story will always be reused a little bit like, you know, Spartacus will always be reused as the, you know, the hero, the underdog, you know, fighting against oppression. Any story like that, which feeds into an oppression storyline where someone's dominant and someone's being dominated will be reused to tell the story of modern politics. Yeah, it's a again. great, it's a great tableau to use. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's easy to use. That's the thing. It's easy to use. Well, I'm sure we could all yeah. say one more, one more thing, but we'd probably be running up to about the runtime of <laughs> Quo <Yeah. Modest. laughs> Well, thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, it was. Uh, this is a great conversation about a really interesting movie. I think everybody should definitely go out and see it, and it's available on all the usual streaming services. You can very easily find it. Yes, you shan't be disappointed. Um, no. You know, even just for Nero, it's definitely worthwhile. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs>